So, any questions tonight? Yes, Trent. Um, so, your explanation of um, how devotees can possibly show more mercy um, to fallen souls than Krishna um, really helped me understand that process. But I was wondering, I was a little confused about how Radha could possibly show more love than Krishna. Mm-hmm. 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 How can Radha show more compassion than Krishna? If the devotees are the Kripa Shakti, the manifestation of Krishna's mercy, and in that way can um, be the principal means through which he shows compassion even while he's not hmm, involved in the world, so to speak. Then your question is, how can Radha be conceived of as the compassionate nature of Krishna, as she is sometimes, when she's not in touch with the world, suffering either, right? That's your reasoning. Mm-hmm. Well, the answer to that is that um, that Radharani uh, is really two things for the devotees. She is the deity in that uh, that in the Taitareya Upanishad, there's a famous statement in the Anandavali, the chapter about Ananda. And the Acharyas have underscored it. There it is said, Rasa Saha, Brahman is Rasa. So for Brahman, Brahman is generally conceived of as one, but for Rasa there have to be two. As I sometimes say, in love, there have to be two, the two have to become one and they have to remain two. So love knows no reason, transcends reason. Um, so, the one Brahman is two, is Radha and Krishna. And so, in, in this sense, if our object of love is is Brahman, in this sense, meaning God, and our conception of ultimate reality is uh, a loving union, which Rasa constitutes, then our, our, our God, it has to be kind of two, kind of a duad, so to speak, that are one, that's the achinti veda bed equation, if you will. So, Radha is deity, then a deity. Hmm? But she is also, at the same time, ideal of devotion. So, from one vantage point, we look at, at Radha as the deity. Another vantage point, we look at her as the ideal of devotion, and she becomes kind of closer to us, so to speak. She becomes a devotee. That's why I sometimes say there's a little Radha in every devotee. Hmm. So, so as much as the devotees are the um, um, kind of emblem of of compassion, Radha as the principal devotee, uh, the pinnacle of devotion, is seen to be compassionate, and we see that she shows compassion to others in the lila. And so forth. So I think that the idea is more that that which Radha embodies, that constitutes bhakti, the ladini shakti that she presides over. When this makes its its ingress into the devotees, the devotees become, and those devotees who are sadhakas become siddhas. Is the idea? Then they're fully equipped to be to show compassion because they've. They've suffered and they've come out of it. And that was the idea of the point that Jiva Goswami has raised in Bhakti Sandarbha 
um, how the devotees are more effectively um, the uh, the uh, um, instrument of or the embodiment of Krishna's compassion. But their being so requires that there be a little rada in them. Hmm? So in that way we can make the connection. But it's a good, good, good question. Hmm? Because she's aloof as well, but then in another way she enters into every devotee that which she presides over, that which she is, she is the, the, it, it, it described as Mahabhav Swarupini, the, the personification of the Ladini Shakti. Ladini Shakti means the, the bliss, the love, um, feature hmm, of the Absolute. It's like Krishna is, 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 is one and his love becomes a, a goddess. Krishna's own love becomes a goddess, and then he's chasing after his own love. And then that in that form, that love gets shared with others, tatastajivas, hmm? like like ourselves. And now we have some capacity, as a result, we have some capacity for realizing our potential to love, actu- actualizing hmm? our potential to love. Hmm? And as we do so, then, in the context of that, we become free from all that is, that is the attachment that is not loving, that is the cause of suffering and so forth, and coming out of it, and then being in touch in the world with others who are suffering, we can have some empathy for them. But it is really only because Radha has, has uh, as Krishna has become one, then... Then, then, then she becomes many in in a sense. It's not that we're Radha, but you understand my point. Hmm? You like that? It's a nice explanation. Yeah, I think that the at the same time the the idea the idea of Jiva Goswami is more that that the that the devotees show compassion and empathy, and they are the Kripa Shakti of Bhagwan. More than a Krishna, even even in terms of saying that Krishna can't show empathy because he has no experience of suffering, is a little exaggerated to make a point. The point being that if you want mercy, then the devotees are the uh, agency for that. Obviously, it's a little exaggerated because Krishna is is uh, well. Another example, he comes as Mahaprabhu. Of course, he's a devotee <laughs> in that position. He shows compassion, but uh, it's a, it's kind of a, uh, making an extreme statement to, to emphasize a point that if we want mercy, we should go to the devotees. And and, and of course, this is they are the instrument through which um, devotion is um, circulated, distributed. Basically, in this world. There are two forces. One is the force of karma, and the other is the force of, of devotion, of bhakti, which is always in the world. Hmm? And um, and even, for example, with the winding up of the world into the Mahavishnu and coming back, well, there are some sadhakas that go there that aren't finished yet, they come back out. So it's always in the world. Hmm? Sadhana is always going on. So these two forces are there. Now, the Krishna as the Paramatma, he is uh, impartial, hmm? and he defers to the justice of the law of karma. Hmm? So, as you reap, as you sow, you shall reap. Idea. So we take from the environment, then the environment takes back. Mm-hmm. And so, Krishna, as Paramatma, is a witness. He's impartial. Mm-hmm. He sanctions the justice. Mm-hmm. He doesn't decide, but material nature is set up to do that, but he, he sanctions it. So, so this is his position. Krishna, on the other hand, is not partial, or is, imp- is not impartial. He's partial to his devotees. Mm-hmm. That's curious. Um, but, of course, uh, the opportunity for devotion 
is given in is 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 given indiscriminately. Hmm? It's given indiscriminately. So in that sense, everyone has the opportunity to become a devotee. Now you might ask, well, so in a higher sense, you could say he, he's impartial, but but um, but then he's very visibly and very really partial towards his devotees, and um, if persons don't like his devotees, then he doesn't care for them either. <laughs> That's very practical. I love psychology. But um, the question may arise as to when, why uh, why some jivas get mercy and, so, and others don't. But basically, again, there are these two forces in the world, People are moving under the influence of karma. And if in the context of moving under the influence of karma, they come in contact with another force, which is there in the world, um, the force that drives the life of a devotee, then they come in touch with with bhakti. And it's while the intermediate devotee who distributes bhakti does discriminate, hmm, and avoid envious people who are against bhakti, and uh, befriend and uh, uh, show mercy to innocent people. Uh, he, while he does exercise that kind of uh, discrimination, uh, even in ignoring and avoiding those who are adverse to bhakti, practically speaking, you, you have to interact with them to find out that they're adverse. Let's say... Adverse. So let's say you're doing kirtan, and people come in touch with the kirtan. So let's say you're you're serving prasadam. Somebody comes to take prasadam, and then he shows himself to be inimical to bhakti. Then you know you're not going to invite him back, or what? Yeah. But but still. So even though my point is, the intermediate devotee who distributes bhakti is discriminating by nature. In the sense that discrimination is the better part of, what do they say, valor or something like that. Is it, I mean, a positive type of discrimination. Still, indiscriminately, bhakti is making itself available wherever it is, and it's somewhere at all times in the world, more than one place, and suddenly there's these two forces. So, some people come in touch with it. Therefore, it's said they become lucky, they become fortunate. They become fortunate means there's nothing they could do that would that would give them bhakti. There's no uh, amount of merit that they attain that therefore they're worthy of bhakti. If that was the case, then bhakti would bhakti's independence would be compromised. Hmm? She would oh she gives to people that merit means merit gives bhakti. Merit warrants some type of merit. I did these good deeds or something or I, I fasted, um, I was a good person, I controlled my senses, um, I prayed, whatever. Therefore, I'm worthy of bhakti. Would mean that um, bhakti's independence, as I say, would be compromised. Bhakti gives bhakti hmm, only. So it's not that there's any, anything we can do that, 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 by other standards, would qualify us. That would qualify us for bhakti. Hmm. So we're, we're considered uh, lucky to run into. Uh, the devotees in the course of our karmic sojourn, which God's not involved in. Hmm? He's witnessing. Hmm? And the force of karma is in play. Hmm? And so he's impartial, hmm? um, but he seems to give devotion to some No, devotion is available to everyone. Everyone doesn't take it, hmm? doesn't respond to it necessarily in the same way or at the same time. Hmm? And some people, well, didn't come in touch with it in this life. What can you do? There are infinite number of souls. So how can you really say that he he doesn't give it to everybody? He gives it to some, not others. How can he give it to everybody when there's an infinite number? You understand? If there's an infinite number of people, then you can't give it to everybody. So it just means this is always going on. There's a force of karma... And there's the force of devotion, and people are moving. Of course, the latter is very is much more rare hmm, by comparison. Therefore, to run into it, hmm, this is 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 just your good fortune. 
you cross the same path hmm, of a devotee. Hmm. So, you know, this, these are, uh, I mean, we just talk extending the discussion a little bit, uh, showing compassion, kindness, uh, so which is the, which is the work of the devotees. But, uh, you know, we have to be careful in wanting God to be just. Because people will see it as a fault if God is is, impar- is partial. Hmm? God is partial to be seen as a fault, but doesn't have to be seen as a fault. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. Hmm? Of course, he's partial to me, so. <laughs> but that's his choice. I mean, it, it, it's a, he is impartial, hmm? and he's partial at the same time. And there is justice, and in order for there to be mercy there has to be some overriding of justice. You can say, well, there's partial overriding of justice because the judge sees there's a good reason and he's going to give But If you want the full face of mercy and the full face of justice, there has to be a place where justice is just overridden and there's no reason for it. Hmm? There's a system in the United States government wherein the president, as he's leaving office after his final term, hmm, he gets to pardon a certain number, half a dozen or whatever it is, three or four criminals. Hmm. He gets to choose whoever he wants and pardon them. And although that by justice they were convicted, hmm, he can pardon them and they can be sent free. And no one can, no one can say who he, who he, who he can be, who he can free, pardon, and who not, or he doesn't have to give any explanation, of course. They always want an explanation, and they all want to determine whether somebody's worthy of it or not, or, and, and then make a big political thing out of it. So, but theoretically, the, the system is he can pardon whoever he wants. Hmm? Um, so he can override the uh, the justice, and such is Krishna's position. He can do as he likes. There's also the we you know, so we shouldn't try too hard to make God just. He is basically, hmm? and that but that means again. That he defers to karma. That's one force. Now there's another force. The force of devotion. And those who are working under the force of devotion, he's partial to them. Hmm? So if we run into them and become partial to them, he becomes partial to us. Hmm? And they are the conveyors and the distributors of his, his, his kindness, his mercy. And Jiva Goswami's idea, of course, that I was referring to is that they have some experience of the world of suffering and it's easier to have empathy if you have some experience. Hmm. Whereas Krishna's wrapped in Ananda Mai and uh, and so forth. But again, it's just to emphasize the, the point hmm. that, uh, that uh, because it's said also, Krishna says, devotees are my heart and I am there. So, if if he is at the devotee's heart, then he's there, and he's experiencing everything, even in their struggles. Hmm? Who's in the heart of the devotee? Hmm? Hmm. The devotee of Krishna uh, uh, places uh, calls Krishna in his heart. Hmm? He takes the name of Krishna, not the name of the Paramatma. Hmm? And so, through the name, for example, Krishna is in his life and in his heart. Even in his life as a sadhaka. And so, in that sense, you can say he knows the suffering. He's there. He's with them. There's some nice examples in Chaitanya Bhagavad. One day, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu called his devotees together and, and he exhibited his his godhood. Hmm? And then he said to them, he told them things about themselves hmm? that only they knew. Hmm? He told, maybe it was Sri Vastakura, do you remember the time hmm? when the Muslims were chasing you? Hmm? And they wanted to defile your wife and, and you came to the river and you were trying to escape them, and there was no boatman. Shivas is looking at him, and remembering that time. And he said, "And then a boatman came, and I was that boatman." 
I took you across. So I'm there with you in all circumstances. So, as I say, it doesn't play out entirely. The idea that Krishna has no capacity for compassion or empathy. Here he's empathizing with the struggles and involved in them of his own own, own devotees. In Brihat Bhagavatamrita, there's a beautiful section as uh, as the um, main uh, figure of the text, Gopukumar. He attains his identity as a cowherd boy in Sakirasa and Krishna Lila, and his name is Sarup, Sarupa, and. Krishna is coming back from herding cows and he sees him and he, and he falls into a trance. He embraces him, he cries, and all the inhabitants are, who's this guy? Is it a demon from that Kamsa sent here? And Krishna's crying. And, and uh, then Krishna comes to external consciousness and Sarup also and he says, so long I've waited for you. Hmm? to come hmm? and I was with you and when all the doors were slammed in your face when you went begging on my behalf and I was there hmm? Hmm. and I, I witnessed and I, I, and I saw all the struggles that you undertook hmm, on my behalf how you had to put up with your god brother hmm? and your god sister had to put up with you hmm? And how this happened to you and that happened to you and you were doing it all on my behalf. All those struggles, I was there, I witnessed, I saw. Hmm? All your devotion. Hmm? And finally now you've come, arrived here. Hmm? It's very, very powerful. It's done very, very, by Sanatana Goswami, very, very compelling and touching, touching way. So, so we can we can see from that that Krishna knows a little bit about about the, about the suffering of his devotees. He has compassion for them, and there is some suffering hmm, in bhakti, and we should not run away from that. The jnanis want to run away from suffering. That's their idea. Hmm. That uh, grasping <laughs> causes uh, causes suffering. So then they say that you should stop grasping, just be, stop trying to attain. Hmm? And then they say, ah, but you should stop trying to attain freedom from grasping. Hmm? And then they say, ah, but you must stop trying to attain freedom from grasping, from grasping, from grasping. You understand? It doesn't end. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a new neo-Dwaitan theological uh, or philosophical kind of uh, nonsense, to be honest with you, uh, idea. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I was just writing to somebody about that, so it's a little on, on my mind. <clears throat> um, <laughs> But, uh, no, it's very practical. <clears throat> Our ideal is not to, simply to be, as I often say, but, but to love. It requires another. And it, it is something, uh, to be attained. It's a blessing. To attain a blessing. To attain the opportunity, if you will, to be all that you can be by the, the nurture that the bhakti environment, uh, provides. And um, and so, unlike the the uh, the Buddhist or the the, the uh, monist uh, idealistic uh, monist Dwaitin, for example, we're not trying to avoid suffering. Hmm. I mean, that's the central focus of the Buddha. Would seem to stop suffering. If it's if there's if it's there's difficulty for serving Krishna, we, we know that's not a problem for us. We we embrace it. Hmm. Of course, that's the end of suffering, which is just an idea. 
So what else? You had a question too? Yeah, I had a question. Uh, well, I just finished this uh, great book, Perfect Questions, Perfect Answers. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, it just like something gave me an idea of, uh, like I was reading and I was trying to, you know, like trying to meet Prabhupada while I was writing it. But, you know, you're, you're one of one of the most important devotees you have so I, I wanted to know like like when you first met him uh, like uh, how was it you know for you and maybe what were what were his um, like I don't know maybe skills or characteristics let's say that, that attached you know that got you attached to him uh huh <laughs> Well, um, I guess I would say that indirectly I met Prabhupada obviously through his other disciples who were um, uh, distributing his um, teachings and so forth. Um, I uh, so I could start there, and um, I f- first saw the devotees at the famous uh, Woodstock festival in nineteen, I think it was nineteen sixty nine or something like that. Yeah, nineteen sixty nine. In a place called Woodstock, upstate New York, yeah. and. What I remember is that we were going to the festival and they didn't expect that so many people would come and all of a sudden it became so many people that came that they declared it a free festival. And um, as I was coming in, it started to rain and then I remember there were people selling tickets. I thought because it was supposed to be a festival of you know love and everything like that, but people had bought tickets, and then they realized it was free, so then they were trying to sell tickets to people that were coming. And I, I, I it's just this, it's just something sticks with me the, the hypocrisy, you know, of it, so to speak. I mean, not that it, not that everybody was doing that, but that that element was still, still present, and I was, you know, wanting to be free from such, and so forth. So those were searching, kind of, many people were searching in those times in the the United States. So, we were were going on, Certain you had to park your car a long, long ways away, and we had driven from Chicago, me and some guys. We we bought an old car, pitched in and drove there. And so we were walking. It was a long, long hike, and it started to rain. And and um, then I saw these devotees. They somehow they reminded me of deer. Deer, you probably know deer. You know they 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 very you know the animal. They jump and very easily, you know, almost they dance and float through the air. and cover long distances very quickly. And it sounds silly, but I'm just giving you my reflections. To me, it seemed like while we were all struggling, you know, to get to the destination, they were just kind of dancing through the whole thing. And they were giving out peacock feathers. Where they got them, I don't know. And they were asking for donations. So I thought that this is stuck in my mind, you know. Those people are... Interesting. They look free, and um, and uh, indifferent. So anyway, that um, was my first encounter, and um, I had another encounter where a person gave me a pack of incense that said, "Chant this mantra, and your life will be sublime." So I used to chant the mantra in my head all the time. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but anyway, eventually I, I, I joined the mission of Prabhupada in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And uh, I joined because I thought this was... I, I had read... Um, I was reading 
a book called the Krishna book. And I was explaining it to other people. I can't imagine what my classes were like at that time. Um, but I had gotten the book from some people in Florida who um, I had stayed with on New Year's Eve. It was a crash pad. And uh, uh, they were very morose, and I was feeling very like these people are kind of a bummer. I was kind of always upbeat, kind of optimistic type of a person. So anyway, they could perceive that as well. And they said, you know, I said, and I looked and I saw this book on the shelf. I said, what's that? It was a book that said KRSNA, big fat book. I said, oh, that's for you. He said, that's for you. You need that. He told me. So that's where I got the book. They gave me the book. And um, so anyway, I would read the book and, and uh, well, it was in that was in Florida. From there, I went to Jamaica, and from there I came back. I lived in the mountains by my, myself and my wife. Um, we were young, quite young, and um, we were the only white people living in the hills. We built a little bamboo hut, and some fellow there gave us some, some just old guy said, "You can have this little piece of land." And so, but it was hard. So. I decided to just come back and follow the chanting. So I returned to California, and I, um, I, that's what I did. I started to preach from to my friends and things like that. And so one of the guys, a gay guy that was living in the same house with me, he had this robe, orange robe sheet. And whenever the devotees would come through town, and he would know, but he'd put on a sheet and go and dance with them, you know. It was kind of a, just a, you know, fun thing for him to do. So, so when he, so when I was, um, reading the book and, and, uh, and people were asking me about it, then I thought if I want to do this, I should, you know, be like them. So I shaved my head. Hmm? So when the guy saw that, he said, Hey, you need this more than me. And he gave me this robe. So I put on the robe and there I was living in a house in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and I was um, reading the Krishna book and explaining it. Like I said, I'd love to hear my classes from those days, but somehow people were interested. And then some devotees from Los Angeles came to Santa Cruz, and some people told them about me. There's a guy up in... in... Um, in... Uh, in, in the mountains in Felton, and he, he 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 belongs with you guys, or you belong with him, one of the two. So they came up and they found me there, and they told me I was doing it all wrong, and because I was married, I couldn't wear the saffron color. I had to have a white color, and had to do it like this. I said, okay, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm ready to join. You know, uh, glad to find some. You know, you guys are into it too. So then they they told me to move down to Santa Cruz City, the town of Santa Cruz. So they had a little center there. So I. I lived there, and there I, I got in very much involved, and um, and then I met Prabhupada in a dream. Hmm? Prabhupada appeared in a dream to me, and um, and um, it was very powerful. And and we were there for three months, and after three months, Prabhupada came to America, to Los Angeles. So they took me down to see Prabhupada. They thought I was a good good catch. Hmm. And um, and so we got there, and Prabhupada was arriving at the airport. So this is what you asked, what it was like. So Prabhupada, um, the airports were very different then; they were a lot smaller and so forth. So we had like I don't know, hundred devotees or something like that in the airport, waiting for Prabhupada. You didn't have all those security checks and things like that, and. Um, and we were chanting in the airport, and uh, Prophet's plane landed, and he got out. And um, I had heard, you know, you've got to touch the feet of a pure devotee. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. So I thought, no, I've got to touch his feet. And uh, and so he got off the plane, and he looked at me. Hmm? And so you asked me about his characteristics, that um, something about his characteristics. And the most um, bodily 
most powerful characteristic of Prabhupada, I'd say, was his eyes, hmm? his glancing. Baladev Vidyabhushan, a, a commentator of previous Acharya of, in our lineage, um, speaks, I think, in his, his Gita commentary of some devotees who have a p- particular power of their glancing hmm? to give a blessing with, just by glancing. Hmm? And Prabhupada had that power. Hmm? It's very extraordinary. So, he looked, he locked his eyes on, on, I mean, everybody's looking at him, of course, you know. I was one of the people he looked back at, so to speak. And um, so, I received that kind of benedicting glance, if you will, and my experience was seeing him and and then um, experiencing his glance that that I had known him for a long, long time, forever, and that he was like my old friend coming to collect me up. And and I'm thinking like this, his thoughts are just coming, and his glance is confirming, like, with a nod like this. And, and so, and then, you know, this all happens in a very short period of time, you know, a few seconds, and a lot happened in a few seconds. And then, there taking him off, you know, through the crowds and whatnot. And so somehow, anyway, I made my way through the crowd and also got to touch his feet, <laughs> which was supposed to be my objective when I was first stunned by his, his, uh, his, his, his glancing. And um, actually, um, now that I uh, think about it, I was uninitiated then, and um, I was taken to Los Angeles to meet Prabhupada, and I I think we were maybe there 10 days or something like that, you know, before Prabhupada arrived, and we had been engaged in different services and so forth. And so when Prabhupada was going to come to the airport and arrive, they made a garland for Prabhupada, and the fellow who was the president of the temple kind of made a career, said, who should we have, you know, Garland Prabhupada? And so I volunteered. Not, not, I mean, anybody would have volunteered, but nobody had the audacity <laughs> to volunteer, and I wasn't initiated or anything. And so he kind of chuckled. Hmm? And said, so you think, he, oh, so he, you know, he let me do that. So I think that was like Garland, and he looked at me, of course. And so that was how I I met, uh, met Prabhupada. And then... Um, Prabhupada stayed there for for three months, and um, that was in the springtime, spring of 1972. Uh, I was just turning 23 years old at the time, and then he left, and he came back in in the winter, maybe November, December, January for three months. Then he came in spring of 73 for three months, and in the winter for three months. So in those two years. I was able to spend six months with him in, uh, in in his temple in Los Angeles, and those are very special uh, times for me. Um, and um, I had, of course, my services, which was paramount, and and the way in which we really make a connection uh, with uh, with our guru and with Krishna by serving them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there were a number of occasions where I, in the context of service, I could be where he was at the same time. And that was every every morning that was possible when he would come out the door to go on his walk and when he would come back hmm, from his walk and come in the door. Hmm. And then there was another door that he would come in the temple. So I was always at each door <laughs> when he would go out and then when he'd come back. And, and after... Uh, some time, then I was also invited to go on on walk. He was, he was going to walk every morning. Hmm? Like that was his health kind of walk, and he would he would talk with the devotees, philosophy and things, and, and so forth. So, you know, those were very um, magical uh, days, and then um, uh, he would give a lecture every morning. I would stand right next to his his seat. 
this asana on the right hand side always I had my place there somehow and um, he was kind he, he noticed me and um, and, uh, and and so yeah and his characteristics other than what I've mentioned um, he was uh, very small you know very short person shorter than me and I'm not very tall he must have been maybe five six or something like that not very tall but he had he seemed t- very towering at the same time he always had his head kind of up like with a vision of conquering the world uh, humbly you know, for, for Krishna hmm? Um so he's very commanding, regal in a way, and at the same time very unassuming. And um, and um, always deferring to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Krishna and his Guru Maharaj for any uh, ability that he had to, you know, do what he was doing, which to him was miraculous and and he could not find any reason or any any quality in himself that um, would uh, mandate or would have warranted that what was happening through him would be happening. He couldn't he couldn't understand that he just thought somehow that my guru's mercy this is all happening to me that I'm in this position and this is and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Dispensation is going far and wide. It was as it was predicted, and so forth. So it's, it's interesting to you know to meet a person of such confidence, and 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 distinguish confidence, which was easy to do in his connection from pride, because pride can be misconstrued. Or confidence could be mis- misconstrued for pride. Hmm? He was very confident about what he was doing. Hmm? Extremely confident, and at the same time. Uh, it was apparent that he was very humble if he could look closely and uh, and see. So, so yeah, it was very um, um, and his movement was just expanding. We were very young, and we we didn't have any income or anything, and uh, whatever donations we got, you know, would. Us. We used to eat on wax paper plates on the floor, and we they had like oatmeal, and it would melt the plates sometimes <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, it was we couldn't afford plates sometimes. So uh, it was uh, were they were they were humble days, but they were also for us. They were humble days, but they were very. Um, Invigorating, and you felt that kind of two things. I would say in his presence, you felt this two opposites. You would feel that that um, that you were insignificant, and that you could take over the whole world. Those two were very opposite feelings. Hmm? I'm very insignificant, but I could take over the whole world. So, in other words, in his presence, you could feel your conditioning. Hmm? Sitting someone next to someone who was so uh, unconditioned by material influence. And at the same time, you could feel the hope in your prospect hmm? to be the same. Hmm? So, it's one thing to, just to say, you're, you're really fallen, and, but, but in the context of that, Hmm? To also have conveyed an assurance hmm? of your uh, deliverance, so to speak. Hmm? That's a very interesting uh, combination. So in his, his company, we I felt like that. Hmm? So he was uh, very uh, was very encouraging. Hmm? I would say very. Uh, very optimistic, uh, while taking a very pessimistic view of material life, which is appropriate, <clears throat> given that one living being, as the Bhagavatam says, is food for another. That's not a great place to to live, the land of hunters and, and the hunted. <clears throat> so while we take a very pessimistic view of the world, 
we also that's the only seeing it from one side if you look at the whole picture of what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was teaching what Prabhupada is teaching it becomes extremely optimistic hmm? as he tells us that you don't have to be part of that that's a, that's a perception it's an angle of vision that can be changed hmm? So it's extremely, uh, Vedanta is often looked at as very pessimistic, uh, but it's extremely uh, optimistic. So there was a kind of a, both of those things. I'm very fallen, but it, you know, it didn't feel like it didn't end up in a, in a, in a, in a uh, lack of like self-esteem type of psychological dysfunction. But, but, uh, but with his, in his company, with his grace, then we could achieve the unachievable, the unimaginable, the impossible could be could be accomplished. Something like that. We could do the impossible. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I spent a couple of years like that, 1972, 73. At the end of 1973, they sent me to um, Australia to teach other devotees there, and Prabhupada invited me from there to go to India. Hmm for his first festival in Mayapur. And I went there, he called me personally and talked to me and told me that every year you go and travel and preach and then come and spend one month with me in Mayapur and Vrindavan. So that was uh, something I did every year. And of course he would come to America every year, so sometimes I would get to see him, catch up with him, be where he was, you know, that, in such a way that it would not be um, in opposition to any, any service that I had to render. To give you an example of that, what I mean is that uh, one time he arrived in Los Angeles and and we were, myself and another devotee, were selling books in the Los Angeles airport and it was illegal to do that. So we were sneaking around illegally and had books in suitcases and so forth and we would sit down with people and talk to them. And so Fridays were a particularly busy day, and Prabhupada was arriving on a Friday. And so we, I wanted to take advantage of, of the fact that it was a busy day and you could distribute more books on a Friday. At the same time, he was arriving on the Friday um, in the afternoon, early afternoon. And so I was conflicted of, with uh, as to whether to stay for the service opportunity and take advantage of, I mean the airports are always busy now but it wasn't like that in those days so it was Friday was a busy day so to stay and and was the day we could sell the most books and serve him by selling more books I was conflicted to do that or to go with all the devotees back to the temple with Prabhupada hmm, be with him personally so I reasoned service to him is, is where he really is how I really connect with him so I'll choose the service, and so I stayed out and sold the books, and and uh, somehow I felt his presence very much, um, and sold all the books that I had, and uh, it was a very um, very blissful experience, and I felt so much that he was just like there selling the books himself or something, or bringing the people to me and in their hearts telling him to take the books. I so much felt his presence. And when I returned to the temple, then one of the devotees ran up and said, Oh, Prabhupada's been talking about you hmm? this afternoon. Well, you know, I was out there. Everybody wants to talk to Prabhupada. Hmm? Wants him to, you know, to get his attention and so forth, naturally. But he had, she was telling me his attention was on me and I was not there. Hmm? So that was a very good lesson for me. Hmm? that confirmed my uh, spiritual sensibility that Prabhupada, Guru, or Krishna is there in the service that we render, and sometimes more so, hmm, even when that service causes physical separation, hmm, sometimes more so than in his physical uh, presence. But if there was any opportunity to be in his personal presence, I would certainly take advantage of it. That's, uh, uh, I remember one time, this is a short story about that, 
that myself and a godbrother of mine, we used to organize the book distribution on Saturdays for all the devotees in Los Angeles, all the householders would go out on Saturday. We would arrange places and cars and pack books in boxes and put them in the cars and so that after breakfast everything would be set up for them and they could go out. And so Prabhupada was there in Los Angeles and it was Saturday so we were doing that service and then Prabhupada came in. It was conflicting with Prabhupada coming into the temple and giving the class. So we were we were trying to finish and, and get in there in time, and then we heard over the speaker, Vairadha Madhava Kundabihari. And we looked at one another and we just said, forget the service, we got to go there. We're gonna, we can't miss this. You know, we did it every day, but it was just such a, for him it was very um, powerful to chant that uh, song of Bhakti Vinod and, and, um, it was um, we 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 abandoned the service to be there. Of course, we could have come back, and it wasn't a big thing. But we had that kind of epiphany, like you know, you don't want to miss out on an opportunity to be in his physical presence, if at, if at all possible. And the service is not absolutely essential <laughs> at this moment. Then let's go. So. Those are some 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 of some 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 thoughts. I, mean, I had other nice experiences with Prabhupada there. I said I used to used to stand next to Prabhupada, and, and I, when he would where he would sit, and I would be right next to his ear, his right ear, and so I used to like chant right almost right into his ear in response. You know when he would chant. And so I remember, I've told this story before, so you may remember, but I was, I was, uh, uh, chanting. He was chanting Jai Radha Madhava and we were responding and in my mind I thought, this means so much to him, this song. It means so much to him. It means so much to me because it means so much to him, but all that it means to him, that I, I, I can't fathom. So I thought, let me just sing this in response in his ear with no other thought or ambition, but just to sing the sound to please him, because it means so much to him. So I was chanting like that, and he turned and looked at me like, nodded, like, who's that guy? And then uh, that was that was good enough, but then... Um, after the class, then Prabhupada would have a short kirtan, and one of the devotees would lead the kirtan. So, the class stopped, and there were a few sannyasis there. I wasn't a sannyasi at the time. And so they kind of were jostling for who was going to lead the kirtan. It's all happening in a matter of seconds and so forth. And then one stepped up. They had a microphone for the, for the, for the chanter, stepped up to chant, and just started, and Prabhupada stopped him and said, turned to me and said, let this boy chant. And they all looked at me like, what? And so I led the kirtan. And the next morning, Prabhupada did the same thing. He said, no, let this boy chant. <laughs> so that was, uh, was very um, gratifying and, and, and compelling to know that that they could uh, feel one's sincerity and and so forth. It didn't go unanswered and unheard, and even if it was uh, unvoiced, but silent, and and so forth. I became very attached to Prabhupada there, and uh, the first three months that he was there, I was so attached to him, and I couldn't even think of him not being there. And one day, one of the I, mean, I thought, this is what it's like. You know, we're just with Prabhupada all the time. Hmm? And I, you know, I mean, I know he was traveling around the world, but it just didn't enter my mind. I was just, it was, there it was. We were living in Dorgan, and Prabhupada was there every morning, and, and this is, this is, I had arrived. This is what I thought. And then one devotee told me that, that, you know, in two days, Prabhupada's leaving for 
Hawaii or something. And I couldn't, like, I couldn't believe it. I, I just, I had a, I could not, uh, I just had no um, place for that in my head that Prabhupada was leaving. And then I just felt these very powerful um, um, feelings of, of separation. Hmm? It was extremely blissful. And all just, you know, all came in my head, my mind, oh, that's what it is. Because it's in the books, right? Hmm? The, the pangs of separation and the bliss. That, but it's just in a book. It's just a, it, you know, you can talk about it. Separation makes the heart grow fonder, and you can get some idea about it. But at that time, I deeply experienced that. It was very. So this is how the you know the books come alive by experience. Then you're able to talk about them in a compelling way and with different examples and 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 so forth and try to convey that um, to others. But uh, it was very powerful. I had to sit down and and uh, it was it was oh 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 very overwhelming. Hmm? And then I had to go through that for a couple of days. It was pretty. <laughs> it was good. I mean, but. Hmm. You can only talk about it as if it was it was bad. He was leaving. So, so um, then I you know, then I got used to that. Then I had to get used to that. I was, wasn't going to be there all the time physically, and so forth. But I made my way around and got his company. I was very bold um, to get his company. I guess I asked. To garland him when I was uninitiated, and they thought he was pretty. This guy's pretty bold, but well, I'll do it. Okay, so I was always like that. I always felt Prabhupada's my best friend, and he's come to, as I said, to gather me up, and he's known me forever. And here yeah, I've been waylaid here for some reason, and, and now we're meeting again. So that was what it was like for me. We're meeting again, and um, so I felt always very comfortable around Prabhupada and very. Um, I mean, there were people who were managing the mission, and they would they would uh, legislate in some ways um, how the devotees could interact with Prabhupada at different times, and, and other times not, and so forth. And everybody couldn't go on the walk with him, for example. You know, it could take three hundred devotees out on the walk every day, and, and so forth. But um, I, at a certain point, I just started going, and they would make these announcements only. You couldn't do it always in, in Los Angeles, because there was just one car at the time. But I got, you know, then at those times, I, sometimes I got invited. But but in Mayapur, where Prabhupada said, you know, come every year and spend one month with me, Mayapur and Vrindavan, we'd go on walk every day. There was no car. <laughs> so they would make an announcement. So Prabhupada's going to go on the walk. Only the sannyasis and the GBC can go on the walk, you know. And it was practical because they couldn't, like, you know, several hundred devotees go and there were things to do in the temple. I mean, he'd go on a walk and with the culmination of the walk at the end, he would come into the temple and greet the deities and then there would be the Jairadamadava in the class. Hmm? So they made this announcement. But I just, just, like, I didn't think of it like I was going to break the law or anything like that. I just thought, you know, Prabhupada's going on the walk. I just went. Hmm? And Prabhupada talked to me. So they couldn't say anything. <laughs> he would say things to me, and uh, he would acknowledge me, and uh, he knew I was in the field selling books, and so he would sometimes ask me what people were saying, and I would tell him some of the arguments that people were giving. He would give arguments back, and he wouldn't always, you know, talk to me. But um, I, Prabhupada wanted his books distributed, and I was very instrumental in that. Prabhupada called me the incarnation of book distribution, which was like bewildering to the devotees. They thought, what does that mean? Jamal Krishnamurti told me, he said, I thought maybe you're some kind of avatar or something. You know? <laughs> I said, I just prob- no, it's not me. It's probably very generous, that's all. But, um, you know, I was very sincere about that and um, and uh, I inspired a lot of other devotees. So, I, I couldn't, nobody could touch me, so to speak. Nobody could, ha- and I could because they knew that, well, this guy's doing, Prabhupada had, one fellow had recommended the Prabhupada that give him sannyas in a letter. And Prabhupada wrote back, he's doing more than any sannyasi already. Why well, he needs to be a sannyasi? He's a brahmacharya, he's happy, he's not asking. Hmm? 
and he's doing more than any sannyasi. All the sannyasis then, some of them came to me and said, what is it you're doing, you know, how do we... <laughs> I said, I don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, trying to please Prabhupada. And so he would, he made a couple statements like that about, in those days all the letters would be read to everybody, whatever Prabhupada, whoever sent, Prabhupada sent a letter to would become public domain. So I had a kind of a special category. I wasn't, I was like not a leader, and not and kind of a rank and file, and I was a, I would go out with all the the regular devotees, so to speak, all the time, and then they would and I would also teach, and and then I had free access, you know, to Prabhupada like everybody didn't have, so I was in a unique kind of a position. And Prabhupada did give me sannyas in 1975. That's another story, but but an interesting one. So anyway, I would I was I'd always um, find my way to get his company, and um, and that's well, that's why I ultimately I took sannyas because I wanted absolutely no barriers, and sometimes there was still some barriers, and I thought, well, what the heck with this, you know? I'll just take sannyas, and then nobody can, because they would give you barriers like you know, like make you feel like you're not supposed to be there. Hmm. So it was a little intimidating at times, but I'll tell another story in that regard. That what Prabhupada was like, we were in Chicago with Prabhupada in his room, and he was speaking, and I was a sannyasi at that time, and all of a sudden there was this big crash outside. Prabhupada said, what is that? So they went outside to look, and there was a devotee who had been, who had like stacked up a couple of chairs and was standing up and cracked the window and listened to what was being said in there. Hmm. And so they, they crashed and it fell down. And so then, so then they and they, came, they came back and told Prabhupada, "Is this, you know, this uh, Premarnava? You know, he, he did this, and and they were upset with him." And Prabhupada said, "Why well, he doesn't come in then if he wants to hear? <laughs> Why did he just come in? You know, so you know, <laughs> I could see that there was a side to Prabhupada, like he loved us all, and you're all welcome, and you know." They're man- oh, they're managing. You can't come. Okay, well, but anyway, you're you know, th- that was kind of a part of a, a, a dynamic of of Iskon at the, at the time. There's more examples of that kind of a thing. Um, like when he was thought to be departing from the world, he wanted all the devotees to come, and the management thought, well, all the devotees can't come, so they tried to restrain him. But probably one of them all to come, and it was just. You could see he had no objection to all of them coming. But the management thought that'll be a problem. He said, "Yes, that could be, but I want them." But you know, so, you know but they, you know, so it was, this kind of dynamic was was there. Hmm. And um, and so, if someone made their way, you know, into his his company, they would be embraced and welcomed uh, by him. Hmm. But. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then in 1975, I, I, I had a vision that, that uh, was one thing, and then uh, in the Vrindavan temples, it was when the Vrindavan Krishna Balaram temple opened, which was a huge victory for Prabhupada because um, that was kind of his home, Vrindavan. He left there to come preach in America, and now he was establishing a big temple there of Krishna Balaram, which was peculiar. At the, t- at the time, so it was a big, big thing, and we had been selling books and all the money for the book selling was going just for building the temple. Mm. On my party, mm. there was another party of two sannyasis that were collecting money, and then our party of booksellers, and all the money that was going for the building the temple. So we were very, you know, felt very connected to that, mm. that effort. And um, so wanted to be there for the opening, of course. It was a big event. And I had a, a very uh, powerful vision experience at that time, and I thought oh, I, I should take sannyas. And, and then a, the afterthought came, and then these guys will really leave me alone in terms of being um, with Prabhupada. You know, at least during this month when he told me to come and be with him, because they would they would still try to edit and manage and. No, I'm not. They needed to to some extent, but it could be over the top at times too. 
So, anyway, they had Prabhupada, they had, the GBC had made a rule two weeks earlier in Mayapur that no one can take sannyas unless they are recommended by the governing body, the GBC, and they wait for one year. Hmm? And so I didn't know their rules. Hmm? And so um, I, w- I thought I should take sannyas just based on this epiphany and, and my afterthought. And then uh, I was going to go ask Providence, and one of them stopped me and said, you know, we got a rule, you can't. You know what to speak. You're not going to see him right now. You, you, you ask him for sannyas, and you got to be recommended by all the GBC, and then you got to um, wait a year. So I thought, huh, okay. So then um, um, I went around and I picked the different GBC people, and I told them I want to take sannyas. I want to take sannyas. Hmm. I'm going to take sannyas. <laughs> Kind of, you know, I, was, I wasn't, you know, pushy in it, but I was saying this. Yeah, this is what I want to do. I, I heard I got to talk to all of you guys. I guess, I, I guess the one guy said we got the GBC's got to approve. So I went, I went and talked to them, and then one of them said, "Well, and then you got to wait a year." But when I got to Tamal Krishna Maharaj, one of my god brothers, he had heard this. Hmm? He was going around Tripurai Maharaj. Tripurai wants to take sannyasa. And so he said, he said, let's go talk to Prabhupada. So I went with him. We talked to Prabhupada. He said, Prabhupada, uh, Tripura wants to take sannyas. And Prabhupada said, then tomorrow you can do it. <laughs> and so there it was. The ceremony was the, was the next day. Hmm? So Prabhupada just approved their resolution two weeks earlier, and then he just ignored it. <laughs> As well, so, you know, I could see that rules were meant to be broken at times, you know, at appropriate times. So, so the next morning he, he gave me sannyas and then I had more freedom, you know, to interact with, with him. And, you know, so those are some, some stories. What's the time? 7.40. 7.40, okay. Let's stop there. Srila Prabhupada ki jai. Sri Sri Rajagopal ki jai. Go Nitananda ki jai. Sri Sri Gorada Madhava ki jai. Go Bhaktabrinda ki jai. Go Premananda ki jai.